Revelation 14, verses 14 through 20. Give ear to the reading of God's word. It says, Then I looked, and behold, a white cloud, and seated on the cloud, one like a son of man, with a golden crown on his head, and a sharp sickle in his hand. And another angel came out of the temple, calling with a loud voice to him who sat on the cloud, Put in your sickle and reap, for the hour to reap has come, for the harvest of the earth is fully ripe. So he who sat on the cloud swung his sickle across the earth, and the earth was reaped. Then another angel came out of the temple in heaven, and he too had a sharp sickle, and another angel came out from the altar, uh, the angel who has authority over the fire, and he called with a loud voice to the one who had the sharp sickle, Put in your sickle, and gather the clusters from the vine of the earth, for its grapes are ripe. So the angel swung his sickle across the earth and gathered the grape harvest of the earth and threw it into the great winepress of the wrath of God. And the winepress was trodden outside the city, and blood flowed from the winepress as high as a horse's bridle for 1,600 stadia. This ends the reading of God's word. You may be seated. Well, our text here in chapter 14, uh, at the end of the chapter, presents us with a uh, it's a vision of the return of Christ as he returns to judge the living and the dead, as we confess when we, whenever we recite the Apostles' Creed together. And this vision of his return, it's not the only vision of his return in Revelation. It's one of those things that you have to bear in mind as you read the book, that it's not linear. It doesn't go from point A straight to point B. Uh, Revelation is a cyclical book. In other words, it tells the whole scope of history, of redemptive history, multiple times from different angles. And so multiple times in the book, you will find chapters and passages like this one, not just at the end, but in the, be- in the middle of the book, that picture for us in some way, through a vision, Christ's return in judgment. It's one of the reasons why some, some commentators and theologians have much difficulty with this book and get confused because it does mention it multiple times in multiple ways. And so this is one more of these visions, these cycles of visions talking about Christ's return. And this time it pictures his return, much like he does in his own parables, as a harvest of some kind. Really a double harvest, two different kinds of things being harvested in this passage. The first part of our text talks about a grain harvest. Now it doesn't use the word, but it's a grain harvest. It might be wheat. We don't know. He doesn't specify that. And we're told that the harvester of the grain is none other than Christ himself. What does it say? One like a son of man coming, seated on a cloud, verse 14. And he's told to put in or to send his sickle and reap that harvest. Many commentators view this, and I I agree with them, that this is the harvest of, of believers. This is the harvest of the redeemed, those who are in God's grace by God's grace are in Christ by faith. They are taken here, taken to be with the Lord forever. So this is meant to be a joyful harvest. This is not meant to be something that is frightening to you as a believer. The second half of our text, the second part of this twofold harvest, is that of the vineyard. It's, a, it's a, not a grain harvest, it's a grape harvest. And here, instead of grain, again, it's grapes. It's the, the vine being gathered together, all the fruit of the vine. And this is not a joyful harvest for those involved. In fact, I think we're going to see that this is the harvest, in a sense, of the unrepentant who are being judged and cast into what, it, what is called in our text the great wine press of the wrath of God. It's a very frightening image. And Revelation doesn't pull any punches in that regard. So we're going to look, Lord willing, this morning at both sides of this double harvest 
And then we're going to offer some points by way of application of it to our lives. So let's look at the first thing. The first thing in our text in verses 14 to 16 is the grain harvest or the wheat harvest. And the first thing you might notice in the text is the identity of the harvester himself. Who is the harvester in this text? Uh, the harvester or the reaper here, it can't be doubted, I don't think, that this is the Lord Jesus Christ himself. John writes in verse 14, he says, Then I looked, and behold, a white cloud, and seated on the cloud, one like a son of man, with a golden crown on his head, and a sharp sickle in his hand. Now, you might know that clouds are very often used in the scriptures uh, to represent a couple different things, at least. One, they represent the glory of God. They often are used to represent the glory of God. Uh, maybe it's an idea of kind of shielding it from our view a little bit since we can't look at it, but it's a picture of God's glory. It's also very often a picture, a symbolic picture of the presence or coming of God in judgment. The, the Lord is always is very often spoken of as coming with clouds when he's coming to judge during this life or at the end of the age. Think of the glory cloud if you think of the book of Exodus when they had the tabernacle and the temple being built later on. What did you have coming down on the on the tabernacle and on the temple? You had a cloud. You, that same cloud was what, remember, would lift up from the tabernacle and it would move. And when the cloud moved, what did Israel do? Israel moved. They would follow the cloud. When the cloud stopped, they stopped. It's how God led the people throughout the wilderness wandering. Exodus chapter 40, verses 34 to 38 says this. Moses writes, Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting. It's the tabernacle. Covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Throughout all their journeys, whenever the cloud was taken up from over the tabernacle, the people of Israel would set out. But if the cloud was not taken up, then they did not set out till the day that it was taken up. For the cloud of the Lord, this wasn't any regular cloud, right? The cloud of the Lord was on the tabernacle by day, and fire was in it by night, in the sight of all the house of Israel throughout all their journeys. So at night, the cloud was a pillar of fire. It gave them warmth, it kept them safe, and during the day when the sun was out, the cloud gave them shade, and it was God's presence with them. It symbolized God's presence in a special way with them. Now, because that cloud was a picture of the presence of God, uh, very often it's also no surprise that the scriptures also use the imagery of clouds to speak of the Lord's coming in judgment. It's his presence either way, but sometimes it was his presence to protect his people, and sometimes it was a vision or a symbol of his presence coming in judgment. Look at Daniel Daniel 7.13. It says, Daniel writes, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like the Son of Man. What does that remind you of? Revelation 14. There came one like the Son, like a Son of Man, and, and he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. So one like the Son of Man comes, and how does he come? With the clouds of heaven. That's how he saw him. In Revelation, the very first chapter, Revelation 1-7, it says this, Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all the tribes of the earth will wail on account of him, even so, amen. You might know that Jesus himself, in one of his parables, his parable of the harvest uh, of the elect, speaks in the same way in Mark chapter 13, verses 24 to 27. Jesus says this, But in those days after that tribulation, the sun 
will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will be falling from the heavens and the powers in the heavens will be shaken. And then they will see, here it is, the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. And then he will send out the angels and gather his elect from the four winds from the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven. It's a consistent pattern in scripture, the way that the Lord's return is spoken of. Now, the harvester in our text, the one that's spoken of as being one like the Son of Man, in verse 14, notice what he's wearing on his head. It says he has a golden crown on his head. Now, this this isn't the crown that you picture probably in your mind of a king, although he is certainly a king. Uh, the word used here is the one that describes a victor's crown. In the Olympic Games, you might see some old pictures from, or old drawings and things of back in the day, they would have like a wreath around their head, a, a victor's laurel. It's that kind of a crown, and it's made of gold. Now, why is he wearing that kind of a crown? Jesus is pictured as wearing the victor's crown because he was victorious for our salvation over sin and death, the devil and hell itself, through through his cross and through his resurrection. He He was victorious for our salvation, and so the picture here is that kind of a crown, on his head. Now this, I think this should be a very special uh, comfort for every believer in Christ that Jesus Christ himself is the one doing the reaping here. He is the one gathering his people in a very real sense in this vision in Revelation chapter 14. Now John gives us a brief description of this wheat harvest in verses 15 to 16. He says this, and another angel came out of the temple. Notice where all the, all the actions coming from the temple. Uh, and the altar. The, and the, another angel came out of the temple, calling with a loud voice to him who sat on the cloud. And what does he say? He says, put in your sickle, or send out your sickle, and reap, for the hour to reap has come, for the harvest of the earth is fully ripe. So he who sat on the cloud swung his sickle across the earth, and the earth was reaped. Now, you might notice that the word grain or wheat is not actually in the text itself. The reason that they most uh, most commentators point out that this is a grain harvest is because the word ripe being used has the idea of something being dried out. You know, if, if you're harvesting fruit and it's dried out, you've waited too long. If you're harvesting grain like wheat or corn, there's a certain time of year you would harvest it. It's when it turns brown, when, it, when it's dried out. That's when you harvest it. You don't harvest grain, wheat, when it's green. You harvest it when it's dried out and ripe. That's why this is pictured as a wheat harvest or a grain harvest of some kind. You might know that Jesus used the same kind of analogy of a grain harvest with regard to his own redeemed people in his parables. You know the parable of the wheat and tares? I think the ESV has the heading, calls it the parable of the weeds. So whatever way you think of it, when you think of it being uh, mentioned, in Matthew 13, verses 24 to 30, it's one of the places where that is found. But his, his parable of the wheat and the tares is very much like this passage in a lot, of, a lot of ways. Both speak of God's people as good wheat or grain being harvested. Both, those, both this passage and that parable in Matthew 13 uh, speak of a separation of the wheat from the weeds or the tares at the judgment. Matthew 13.30, it says, as part of that parable, it says, let both grow together. That's the wheat and the weeds that, that in some way resemble the wheat, right? Let both grow together until when? The harvest, and at harvest time, I will tell the reapers, gather the weeds first and bind them in bundles to be burned, but gather the wheat into my barn. 
You know, in this life, the tares or the weeds may resemble the wheat in a lot of outward ways. And so God doesn't rip out the weeds uh, during this life. Uh, but the Lord himself knows the difference between the two, doesn't he? He knows the difference between the two, and, and he will make that distinction clear on the day of judgment. That's what that's a promise that is something we should be comforted by, that God knows, as the Bible says, the Lord knows those who are his. And that should be a comfort for you if you're a believer in Christ, that God, God, God is able to save his people and reserve the wicked for the day of judgment and not blur the lines. He will not lose one of his own, and he will not fail to pass judgment on someone who is outside of, of Christ, especially those who have persecuted his, his people. Well, the second half, the second half of our text in verses 17 through 20 is the grape or the vineyard harvest. It says in verses 17 to 20, John says, Then another angel came out of the temple. Notice, out of the temple again. Out of the temple in heaven. And he too had a sharp sickle. And another angel came out from the altar. That's the place of the sacrifice. The angel who has authority over the fire. And he called with a loud voice to the one who had the sharp sickle. And he said, Put in your sickle and gather the clusters from the vine of the earth, for the grapes, or its grapes, are ripe. So the angel swung his sickle across the earth and gathered the grape harvest of the earth and threw it into the great winepress of the wrath of God. And the winepress was trodden outside the city, and blood flowed from the winepress as high as a horse's bridle for 1,600 stadia. Now, our text in Revelation, as we've read this morning in Joel chapter 3, it uses the same kind of imagery, this wine press idea. God's wrath involving this, this picture of, of trotting a wine press. Joel 3.13, we read that this morning. It says, put in the sickle for the harvest is ripe. Go in and tread for the wine press is full. The vats overflow for their evil is great. That passage in Joel mentions the same twofold harvest, wheat and the grapes. Isaiah 63 verses 1 through 4, I won't read the whole passage, but that also speaks of God's judgment upon the wicked in the, as a picture of God treading the wine press alone. I know in town we've had, uh, I think every September we have a grape stomp. Well, this is a different kind of grape stomp. This is God stomping out his wrath on those who harm his, his people and on the unrepentant. And it says in Isaiah 63, 3, that God treads that wine press alone. And it mentions he's mighty to save in the same context. It's, it's both, or both sides of the same coin. Now, John describes this as the great winepress of the wrath of God. And now, we've noted a number of times in recent weeks going through this book that the wrath of God is something that the Bible speaks about often. It's not a, it's not a, a pleasant thing to, to think about for us. It isn't something that should be pleasant or enjoyable or fun to preach about or to hear about. Uh, spoken of in, in sermons, but it, but it should be preached on if, it, if the Bible talks about it. And the Bible speaks of God's wrath uh, a lot more than we might uh, care to think. It speaks of it often. It speaks of it nearly as often as it does of his grace and mercy. You know, when you look at books like Joel in the Minor Prophets, I, I almost want to say every, of every one of the prophetic books in the Old Testament speaks of both. It speaks of the coming of the Lord in judgment, and it speaks of God's grace towards his people. And yet, how rarely do we hear these things in the pulpits of our churches? How often do you hear everything but that? If the Bible speaks plainly and repeatedly about something, and somebody in, in your pulpit does not mention those things, what can you conclude but that those things 
that are left unspoken in the pulpits mean that there's unfaithful shepherding going on. Even having a wolf in sheep's clothing, there are wolves in sheep's clothing among the elders of God's church in many places. And the rule of thumb here has to be something like this. We, we can't be silent where God's word speaks, especially where God's word speaks often. And we dare not speak where God's word is silent. If God's word says it, we should be trying to make the whole counsel of God known. If it speaks of God's wrath, then it must be there for a reason. It must be there for us. It's not just there for the unbeliever, although it is there for them to hear and be warned. We must need to hear of it. Why else would it be in the Bible so many times and throughout the book of Revelation? And how much more so is this the case when the eternal destiny of people made in God's image is at stake? We must affirm and make known the truths of God's word, even the truth of God's wrath, as well as the truth of God's grace in Jesus Christ. Notice in verse 20 it says, This wine press was, where was it trodden? Outside the city. That outside the city, that is symbolic of a place of judgment. The judgment is outside. The city is probably Jerusalem in this picture, but the, the, the judgment is outside of the city gates. And, and notice how violent this picture is that's being pictured here for us. It's being pictured as a very bloody, like it talks about a wine press, and then what does it mention? Blood. In case we don't get the hint, right? And, and how high does that blood flow? As high as a horse's bridle. For 1,600 stadia. Now, we don't measure things in stadia anymore, so it's hard for us to kind of put together what that, uh, what that means, but um, the, I think it's around 180 miles if you do the, the transposing from that to our, our, our math and our using of miles. And so people have tried to speculate that Jerusalem was about that big, and I don't think that's the point. I don't think we're supposed to picture uh, the city, but uh, I think the picture is, you know, in Revelation, the numbers, the numbers are very often symbolic and significant of something else. And so what is the number four? I won't make you raise your hand or say anything, but the number four in the book of Revelation and Scripture is very often the number of the earth. We, we mentioned it before in one of the previous passages about the four winds, the four winds of heaven, you know, and the four directions, northeast, southwest, the four corners of the earth is round, but we talk about the four corners of the globe. It's a picture of of the world, of earthly things. And so you have four times four. It's kind of four, the number of the earth squared, multiplied by a thousand. Well, a thousand is a picture of a multitude. It's a, it's a scriptural number. Uh, speaking of a multitude, that's where you got earlier in a few of the chapters. We talked about the 144,000 of God's elect. That wasn't meant to be an actual number of saved people. It was meant to be... 12 apostles, 12 uh, of the, of the uh, tribes of Israel multiplied by a thousand. It's the, the, the whole encompassing of God's people in that case. Well, in this case, uh, that number, 1600 stadia, it, it's a picture of the completeness of God's wrath being poured out. The completeness of his judgment, the comprehensiveness of his just judgment upon the wicked. Every drop of his wrath will be poured out upon the unrepentant. None will escape unless they take their refuge in Christ alone by faith. That's, that's this picture. So remember Revelation, I think Dr. Johnson said it in his book on Revelation, it's a picture book, not a puzzle book. It's not a puzzle to be solved. It's meant to give you an impression. So the picture is the main thing, this picture of blood up to a horse's bridle for this far around. It's, it's, to, it's meant to give you a, a very dramatic impression of God's just judgment 
upon the wicked. And it's a startling picture if you really spend the time to think about it. It's easy to read the words and not think about it. But you think about what a startling picture that is. Now, many in the church even today will deny such things come to pass. And yet God's judgment and his wrath, even... I mean, the Revelation even talks about the wrath of the Lamb in chapter 6, verse 16. The Lamb is the one who died to save us. Well, he's the one that's going to return to judge the living and the dead. These things are spoken of throughout the book of Revelation and throughout the Bible in general. And this is not without reason. And I think these truths have to be made known to God's people, to us in the church. I think these truths, if we read them correctly, I think, they're intended to be of great comfort to you as a Christian. If you're a Christian this morning, even this passage with this violent imagery is meant to be a comfort to you in some way. You know, especially it's a comfort to you, to, to a believer who has been afflicted and persecuted by the wicked. Now, most of us, maybe all of us in this room, have no idea what that's like. But there are many places throughout, throughout the world and throughout history, even today, where Christians are being killed for their, their profession of faith in Christ. To them, this would be an encouraging thing to be shown that God will judge. The, ju- the judge of all the earth will do right. He will not leave these awful things unpunished. It should be an encouragement to God's people. These truths have to also be made known to the unrepentant as well. Why is it? They have to be warned to flee the judgment that is to come. That's a part of the gospel message that often gets omitted. They have to be told to seek the Lord while he may be found and to call upon the Lord for salvation while there is time, while God gives them time for repentance. Now, the Lord Jesus Christ himself endured the very wrath of his Father in our place, in the place of his people, whom he came to save. He shed his blood as the lamb without spot or blemish to redeem us from our sins and to save us, if you're a believer, to save us from the wrath to come. And where does the scripture say that Jesus suffered? In the book of Hebrews, it says he suffered outside the camp, outside the gate for our salvation. Hebrews thirteen eleven to 16 says this, For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy places by the high priest, he's talking about the temple, as a sacrifice for sin are burned where? Outside the camp. And so he says, So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. Where was the cross? Outside of the city gate, outside of Jerusalem. And he says, Therefore let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured. For here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. Through him, then, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is, that is the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. Now, he's talking probably to Jewish believers who had been cast out of their city and driven away from Jerusalem, cut off from the temple. And so they might have been tempted to think, we've lost all this, we've lost the temple, we've lost all this. And so the, he, the, the writer of Hebrews tells them and tells us, where was Jesus, where, 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 where did he suffer? Go to him outside the camp. This isn't your lasting city anymore. You go to Jesus Christ outside the camp, bear the reproach that he endured, and we have a city, a lasting city, not a temporary one that is to come, 
And so what does he say? What, what's our, what is our response? Offer up a sacrifice of praise to God that is the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. Not the fruit of the vine anymore, not the fruit of the, of the grain, these offerings that were done in the temple. We, we still have a sacrifice to offer to God. It doesn't involve killing an animal. It doesn't involve grain or wine. When we sing the songs, we're offering up a sacrifice of praise to God, and it's the fruit of the lips that acknowledge his name. So Jesus Christ, if you're a believer, Jesus Christ suffered outside the gate to sanctify you through his blood. And so what does the writer of Hebrews tell us to do? Therefore, we should go to him outside the camp in this world and bear whatever shame or reproach might come your way as a result of that profession of faith in Christ. Let us never be ashamed to be called Christians. So I have to ask this morning, which, which harvest will you be a part of? In our text. That's what we're supposed to do. We're supposed to find ourselves here in the text, right? Which harvest are you going to be a part of? Are you, have you come to Christ by faith for salvation from your sins? If you have, you can rejoice that by God's grace, He will take you safely home to heaven on that last day. You are part of that wheat harvest in the first part of our text. And what's the, what's the takeaway? What should you do if that's the case? What does the writer of Hebrews say? Let us continually offer up a sacrifice of what? Praise. That's the fitting response. You live a life that is pleasing to him, but you, you praise him and offer up a sacrifice of praise to God, the fruit of, of your lips. And what, are the, what else does he say? Let us not neglect to do good and to share what you have. Obey God's commands out of a heart of love, out of gratitude for what he's done for you in Christ. And what does he say? For such sacrifices are what? Pleasing to God. God is pleased by those things, by his grace. He sanctifies even our good works and accepts them through Christ. Amen.